Hello and welcome to Northeast Christian Church online service. We are so happy to have you with us. Please be sure to follow NECC on all social media platforms. And to listen to all our past messages, follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. Thank you and enjoy the rest of the service. Well, welcome everybody. I'm glad to be uh, back in church and back in action this week. Uh, the rain and the snow really did seem intent on killing me, but I made it. And uh, I'm glad to see that you have as well. Uh, for those of you I haven't quite seen yet or haven't been able to talk to yet, Happy New Year. Uh, it's great to be back at church for the new year. And for those, for those of you who do not know me yet, I'm Pastor Dylan. I'm one of the pastors on staff here. Uh, pastor Paul, our lead pastor, is with his mother uh, right now, just taking care of her, spending some time with her. Uh, so keep him in prayer. Uh, she's or keep her in prayer, I should say. She's transitioned recently. Her husband passed away last year, and it's, it's, been, a, it's been a difficult journey, I'm sure, for her in ways. So uh, keep Pastor Paul and his family in your prayers, and I, I know he'll appreciate that. Uh, I'm eager to get started on our yearly series called The Spiritual Disciplines, uh, which this year we're calling Practicing the Way. Uh, it's been inspired by a pastor I really like out of Oregon that I'll talk about shortly, that I, he, I've been reading some stuff from him. And the reason I like that name is that it reflects how the earliest Christians referred to themselves as followers of the way. I don't know if you knew that, but that's what you were called before you were called a Christian, follower of the way. Doesn't that sound cool? Christian was actually a derogatory term that we adopted as a badge of honor that was given to us. And you'll find Christians referred to in that way, get it that way, no, me practicing my dad jokes, anyway, uh, referred to in that way across the book of Acts in chapter 9, 19, 22, and 24. And while this uh, group of early Christians had certain doctrinal beliefs, meaning they stated very specific things about God, they also had really specific practices. Now, it's popular in scholarship and in theology to look at what people say, which is important, don't get me wrong, but in order to understand people, we also have to look at what they do. And in our church, we want to go a step further, and we, not, we don't want to just understand the people in the New Testament, but we also want to live like them as much as possible. These people really weren't enviable. <laughs> they were largely poor, they were mostly powerless, and they had little control over their lives and yet they turned the world upside down. How did they do that? How did they become the kind of people that turned the world on its head? In short, because they practiced what they preached. These practices were what God used to shape these people into the kind of people who were willing to march to their deaths, sacrifice wealth for one another, love one another, forgive one another? What kind of New Year's resolution is going to do that in your life? Their lives still inspire people today. You'll see them all across the back wall, people who go to the far corners of the earth. We have Jeff and I'm not sure, I'm Stephanie, who are missionaries to Peru with us today, and their son Judah. You have people that are, yeah, they're worthy of honor. They still, these people in this book we call the New Testament, still inspire people today to do that. And they inspire people like you and I 
to do the mundane work of love in a home situation that might be really difficult. They inspire the glamorous and the ordinary obedience in our lives today. One of my favorite authors of all time, is uh, his name is Brandon Sanderson. He's a science fiction and fantasy writer. Uh, he's a Latter-day Saint, or what some folks incorrectly call a Mormon. And though I don't agree with his theology, there's very few people who tell a better story about the power of little moments. Uh, in his best-selling book, The Way of Kings, one of the main characters is told by a priest this. In the end, all men die. How you lived will be far more important to the Almighty than what you accomplished. That's what this month is all about. Learning to live your life by a whole new set of practices that may not transform your circumstances, but they do the much more foundational work of changing you. These things are the reason that some people can endure prison camps with joy in their heart and others give up under life's assault. Uh, I just got back from visiting Texas to spend some time with my in-laws for the holidays. And I love my in-laws. I love spending time with them. I'm not just saying that because they're probably going to watch this. I really do enjoy them a lot. And while I was there, I saw this unassuming plaque on a college campus that I just stepped up to read about a chaplain that I've never heard of and you've never heard of, probably. He was a graduate of Baylor University and a chaplain during World War II. He was captured by the Japanese along with his unit, and they were regularly subjected to starvation, beatings, torture, and hard labor. Eventually, this chaplain died in the camp. And the men who survived him, though, told a story of a man who was a source of strength for everyone, who prayed for his fellow prisoners, shared Jesus with the prison guards and the prisoners, and received beatings for it, and would even cut his own rations to feed the sick. He died, a joyful man, in one of the most hellish and depressing places on earth. Now, how do you do that? How do you have that kind of buoyancy? Now, I found that there's no magic bullet, but what I do know is that as I practice the things God has instructed me to, I grow one day at a time, one week at a time, and one year at a time into a kind of person who is more capable of handling suffering with hope, poise, and love even for my enemies. But that only happens if we do what God says. This series is about helping you do that. You might never be tested in a war camp, at least I hope, but each of you is going to face your own challenges tailored to your life. And whether or not we employ the disciplines that Jesus taught us can be one of the deciding factors of whether we grow from pressure or we wither under it. The practices we'll be focusing on in this series largely come from what's arguably Jesus' most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, rabbis in Jesus' time would often teach their disciples dozens and dozens of practices that they would have to follow to follow them. But Jesus really only had three main ones. 
at the beginning of Matthew chapter 6. Prayer, fasting, giving, or as we say, generosity. Now, we've added a fourth one for our series, in case you couldn't tell, Scripture. And the reason we've done that is because Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7, listen to these words of mine and do them. Now, the ancient disciples largely couldn't read and had the physical Messiah standing in front of them to speak the word. You and I no longer have that luxury, unfortunately. And so we meditate on, the wor- on his words in what's called the New Testament. All throughout the Bible, we're told to meditate on God's word. And so we're going to wrap the series up with that discipline. But today, we're going to begin our lesson by focusing on prayer. Uh, This month, and likely the first part of this year, maybe even leading up to Easter, is dedicated to prayer and fasting, what we call our Pray First Month. And we do this to realign our hearts and minds with God, both as individuals and as a community. Like I said, I hope that you can join us here Tuesday night, 6.30 to 7.30 p.m., unless the snowman shows up again. Uh, Jesus said to Peter, could you not pray with me for one hour? We can do that. We can spend that time with him. And I also hope that you'll join my class called Practicing the Way. It happens every Sunday from 9 to 10 a.m. in that back overflow room behind the bathrooms. Uh, We'll go into much more depth than we can here today. We're covering four disciplines. The Bible has a lot of them, and I don't have time to cover them all here, but you will benefit from going to that class to learn about things like Sabbath. What does it mean to stop doing something, not just start doing things? There are disciplines called disciplines of abstinence, meaning things you stop, not just things you start. And in the United States, we're really good at hurry up and go and do lots more. We're not very good at putting it down and ceasing. And so I hope you'll join me for that so I can go into more depth. But as we turn to God's Word today, God's word today to be our guide, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 6. I'm going to let Jesus' words about prayer speak for themselves. Now, usually in a sermon, if at least me and Pastor Paul do it well, you can walk away and say, this was the point, right? Usually has one point, it's nice and clean. Sermon on the Mount is not like that. It's about life in the kingdom. It's describing a whole new way of doing life if you're Jesus' disciple. Now, there's a Greek word for disciple. Everybody repeat after me. Say, mathetes. Mathetes. There you go. You're all Greek scholars now. Uh, That word, traditionally translated as disciple, actually would be better translated as apprentice. Now, Bob is a plumber. He fixed our toilets this week. We're very grateful for Bob because they were all leaking. Now, if you want to be a plumber, you have to be an apprentice. You have to learn from somebody who knows what they're doing. And so Christians, if they're not following Jesus with these practices, aren't really fully Christians yet until they become an apprentice. We have to learn from the master and do what he did. And to do that, we're going to be turning to Matthew chapter 6. We'll start in verse 5. We're going to read that together. We'll pray, and then we'll dive in. Matthew chapter 6, verse 5. We'll go to verse 15. Now, you can follow along with me from my Bible if you want. You can, it'll be on the screens. You might have your own Bible you prefer. There's no magic version of the Bible. The Greek and Hebrew are original. Everything else we do is called a translation. There's no magic translation, okay? So I highly recommend you download something called the YouVersion Bible app. I engage the scripture mostly through that. 
It gives you notifications, keeps you on track, can read the Bible out loud to you when you drive. You will engage the scripture more, I guarantee it, if you download that. And so it's a huge benefit. It's been a great thing for my life. I hope that you do it for your life as well. But we're going to be in Matthew chapter 5, starting, or excuse me, Matthew chapter 6, starting in verse 5. Matthew 6, verse 5 through 15. Let's read. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into the room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they'll be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive those indebted to us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. This is God's Word. Let's pray. Lord, I, no matter how eloquent or prepared, am incapable of delivering the Holy Spirit of God to anyone. And so today I pray that you would hide one of your servants behind your cross and that you would be glorified, Lord. That you would transform our hearts because only you're capable of doing that. And I pray that we would learn to abide with you and to stay with you so that you have the time to do your work. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. There are four qualities of prayer that Jesus teaches his disciples from this little sermon within a sermon. Uh, He teaches them four things that really show them how to pray. This is what prayer looks like in the kingdom of God. Number one, pray in secret. Number two, pray with trust. Number three, pray like this. And number four, pray with forgiveness. Uh, Verses five and six start out with some practical instructions on what our prayers should be like. It says, and when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father in secret will reward you. Now, this section of the sermon reminds us that, number one, we have to pray in secret. Now, that might sound strange if you've never really read the Bible before, or maybe you're unfamiliar with it, but in short, Jesus is telling his followers and us that when we pray, we should be prioritizing a time of prayer that's only known to us. Uh, there's a danger when the lion's share of our praying is done in a public setting. The Lord is giving us a warning, don't love being seen by other people. Don't love being the spiritual person in the room. 
because then admiration becomes the objective of prayer rather than God. And those who want admiration, unfortunately, will probably get it. (laughs) But because God sees our heart, we're going to forfeit the greater reward. In short, Jesus tells us to go to a private place to remove ulterior motivations for praying because he wants our prayers to be genuine and sincere. That's what prayer looks like as a disciple or as an apprentice of Christ. Now, a few recommendations on prayer that I'd encourage you to pick up and read, or maybe you're not a big reader, you could pick these up on audiobook. They're fantastic. Uh, Number one, it's named after the series Practicing the Way by John Mark Comer. Uh, Fantastic resource that'll help you outline the church's practices all throughout its history. Okay, great resource. Pick that up. Uh, Number two is called Fresh Wind, Fresh Fire by Jim Cimbala. He's a pastor in Brooklyn, New York. And it's a great autobiography on what prayer did, not just to transform one man's life, but the life of an entire church. And then last but not least, these are all fantastic books, and I recommend you either read them all or listen to them all. But my favorite is How to Pray, A Simple Guide for Normal People by Pete Gregg. Now, I recommend this every year because I love it. Okay, one one of the earlier chapters talks about Celtic Christians in the 4th and 5th century. Uh, They established the tradition of going on long walks as they pray, which is one of my favorite ways to pray. While we were in Texas, uh, Monica came out to like the pool area behind her parents' house, and I was just doing laps, and she frees and goes, are you praying? (laughs) And I said, yeah. She goes, I like that. I'm like, okay. (laughs) But I I walked through the neighborhood for like seven miles just thinking and praying and reading because it helps me to do that. I walk and I pray. That's an early tradition outlined in this book. For the author of this book, his prayer place where he can be alone is an old sturdy chair in his study. Now, for some of you, that might seem impossible to find, all right? But between uh, trying not to drown in the rain and snow, shouting kids, meals, pressures of laundry, etc., it can seem impossible. But here's a practical tip. Don't try adding prayer to your schedule. Work it into what you're already doing. Uh, You'll find prayer fits in easier by what's already there than by dreaming of this ideal world where you can go into a closet for three hours and be uninterrupted. I'd also encourage you to think subtraction and not addition. Now, what do I mean by that? Where are you whittling away the time where you could be redeeming it? I know some of your phones are reporting absolutely egregious screen times, and I guarantee you not everything you're doing is work-related. You could probably cut some of that social media and dedicate some of that time throughout the day as little moments to God. Carve out that secret place of prayer. These Celtic Christians called it the thin place, where heaven and earth grew closer. The division between them was thinner. Jesus called it a secret place, and he says that those who desire to be his apprentice pray in secret. Uh, Perhaps secrecy is not so much a location as it is a window of time where you're doing something else, Uh, I love praying and driving also. It's one of the best places for me to to pray undistracted. Uh, It also keeps you sane while you drive in Massachusetts. Just an added bonus there. 
but prayer is not necessarily a tranquil place. Prayer is not a place where it feels like a resort, like you're in Waikiki or Cancun. It's the place where you can privately and honestly and consistently bring yourself to God without distraction. Uh, Maybe all you can muster is prayers said under your breath or in your head while you do the dishes while your kids are screaming in the other room. Do it. Or maybe you can all, all you can do is prayers while your spouse drifts off to sleep next to you. But carve out that inner room and shut the door. Because your father's promised, if you'll meet him there, he'll listen to you and he'll answer you. Verses 7 and 8 say the following. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they'll be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Uh, Number two, we're told by Jesus to pray with trust. Uh, There's a really subtle temptation that comes along when you start getting into the rhythm of prayer. And it's what the Gentiles or the non-Jewish believers that Jesus is referencing here, they struggle with it as well. There's a tendency to rely on how we pray instead of the one we're praying to. We all do this sometimes, right? If I slap in Jesus' name on the end of the prayer, God's got to answer it, right? That's what, that's what John chapter 14 says. Whatever you ask in my name, you shall receive. We like to forget that in his name is more than a phrase on our lips. Uh, Some Buddhists uh, write prayers down, and they stick them in prayer wheels, and they spin them so that the prayers will pass before the eyes of the bodhisattvas, their version of gods, to dispense grace to them. They think if the prayers pass enough times, the bodhisattvas will take notice. In spirit-filled churches, such as our own, we like to think that if we pray fervently enough, long enough, loud enough, with a furrowed brow, that God is obligated listen. What if God, (laughs) what if God doesn't answer our prayers because we say them the right way or we say enough of them, but because he's our father? You see, there's an issue of trust here. Some of us trust how we say our prayers, anxious we got them just right. Some of us trust how many of our prayers are said, hoping we stack them up like the Gentiles. Instead, Jesus is telling us to turn our eyes away from how we're praying and look instead to the one we're praying to. Trust the quality of the relationship with your Father. He'll give you what you need. He'll give you what you ask for, not because you're good, not because you said things the right way, not because you said enough things, but he'll give you things because he's your father. Uh, I've been reading uh, St. Augustine's Confessions, uh, which is a classic work by an early church father that I really enjoy. Uh, At one point, he's talking about his conversion to Christ, and his mother is begging and pleading with him not to move to the city of Rome. Uh, He's moving from North Africa to Rome for his career, And she knows this guy's a rascal. I mean, this dude would put us all to shame. He moves to Rome, breaks off an engagement, 
has multiple mistresses, and is involved in a cult where he eats pieces of fruit because he thinks the light in them will release God. I mean, this dude's life would have been a Netflix special today, all right? It's pretty messed up. And his mother, the whole time, is praying that he wouldn't move to Rome because she wants to keep him close and tell him about Jesus. Some of you moms still do that today. We want to keep control of our kids' lives. We know what's best for them. And Augustine writes something very interesting. He says this, God heard the central point of her longing, though not granting what she asked. In other words, God saw underneath the prayer that was prayed and answered what her heart was really longing for. He didn't answer her prayer, but he answered the one that she meant to pray. Augustine moves to Rome, and it seems like the prayers of a mother go unheard, and yet God answers it, brings him to faith in Christ, and eventually he becomes a priest. Now, why do I share that? Because you can trust that your father knows what you mean. You might pray the wrong way, for the wrong thing, at the wrong time, for the wrong person, all the time, but pray anyway, and pray with trust. Talking with your father is infinitely better than you throwing in the towel because you think you can't get it quite right. Even if God says no, his small no's are given in order to give you a greater yes. Paul the Apostle says in the New Testament, what? All the promises of God find their yes in Christ. God is your father, He knows what you mean. So you might be anxious, mom, that your kid is off the reservation. Uh, You can pray with trust. Dad, you might be heartbroken that your son can't think of anyone but himself. Pray with trust. Uh, Husband or wife, you might be grieved over where your marriage is at, but you can pray with trust because God is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. You might be broken over how much you've sinned or how grievously you've been sinned against, but you can pray with trust because God raises up those who humble themselves. God will hear you in the secret place, not because you have the right words or you have enough words, but because he loves you more than you can imagine. He's your father, he's your kid's father, he's your spouse's father, and he has the potential of becoming even your enemy's father. When you start praying like that, you might find yourself believing in a way you didn't before. We're told by Jesus, in order to be his apprentice, we need to pray with trust, and we need to pray with secrecy. Verses uh, 9 to 13, they're probably the most uh, famous prayer in the world, commonly called the Lord's Prayer. Uh, It's estimated that up to a third of the world is praying this any given Sunday morning. And it says this, pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. (laughs) Amen. Now, some of you might be like, where's the awesome finisher? Especially if you went to Catholic parochial school, if you're Catholic, you're like, where is the, for thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever, amen. 
However, that chunk isn't in the earliest copies of the New Testament. It was likely added later. Now, don't get me wrong. I think the Bible is without error. I think it's reliable. But that doesn't mean we always get the transmission right. But for the most part, we do. According to one Princeton scholar you should look up named Bruce Metzger, uh, 97 to 99% of the earliest copies of the New Testament match the latest copies of the New Testament, meaning we've mostly got it right. But every so often, there are small things that need to be adjusted, okay? And we have to have the humility to admit that. I think in this case, this is one area where Christians were just like, hey, we like the remix version of the song better, so we're going to keep that one instead of the original. But uh, we want to be humble and realize we're not perfect in our handling of the Bible, even if God's Word is in its original state. Does that make sense? Everybody panic. Nobody's panicking, right? We're good. <laughs> okay, that's why things like text criticism are important, which we'll cover in my class called Foundation. That starts right after Easter. You can grab one of those calendars at the welcome desk. They will also be on the website, and you can just take a peek at that if that's something you're interested in. I hope you can join us for that. It happens after Easter. But Jesus opens this famous prayer by telling us to, number three, pray like this. Now, a little fun fact for you, this prayer actually rhymes if you say it out loud in in Aramaic, which is what Jesus likely spoke. It's both a poem and a prayer. Uh, which would help his disciples memorize it. It could get, I could give an entire sermon just on the Lord's Prayer, and I have. You can uh, look that up by going to our sermon archives on the website, by going to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you listen to sermons. It's there. You can listen to it. There's a lot I could say, but I'm just going to pull out some important overlooked facts about this prayer. Uh, first, it's okay to pray pre-written prayers. <laughs> Okay, I know many of us might not feel comfortable with that in a spirit-filled church where we prefer to be spontaneous and go with the flow and pray whatever comes to mind. It might feel less spiritual, it might feel less powerful, but Jesus encouraged it. In addition to praying spontaneously, Jesus gave the church a prayer script. Now, sometimes you need help to pray. You're not sure where to start. You need some help, and it it does help to have resources along the way, especially if you're new to it. Uh, How many of you wouldn't mind if God gave you some tips on how to pray? (laughs) You have one right here. Uh, Prayer can be intimidating, especially when you're new to it and you're not sure what to say. Now, uh, praying in, uh, in front of other people can seem like a nightmare to some of you. How many introverts will say amen to that one? You're like, no, thank you. Uh, you listen to others, and they're so eloquent, and they're quoting Bible verses when they pray, and and you think, there's no way I can pray like that, so I'm just going to shut up. When I was a Christian, I I started college by going to a SUNY school in New York, similar to UMass, and uh, I remember I'd never been to a Christian group. I'd never been to a church. I was newly saved. I got saved in my car, another good reason to pray there, and uh, I was like, you know what? I'll check it out. I'll see what, see what the deal is. And so I go to this prayer group. It's a campus of thousands of people. And there's only like five of us who are Christians on campus. And so I sit down. You ever go to something like this? And all of a sudden, everybody's praying out loud. And it's, 
it's the clock is ticking as it comes my turn, and I'm like, oh my gosh, what have I gotten myself into? That you know, you can hear the blood in your ears just pumping, like, and the only word that I could manage to get out was pass. That's all I said. Now, some of you, I'm sure, can relate to that. But when it comes to prayer, Jesus doesn't tell us what to do without telling us how to do it. He gives us a template so that when we pray together, we can have the words to say when we feel speechless. Next time you got to pray in public or pray in a group, just do that. Just pray the Lord's Prayer. Another thing you might notice is that everything in this prayer is plural. It's not my father, it's our father. It's not my bread, it's our bread. And it's not my debts, it's our debts. Why is that? It's because Christ meant for this to be something we pray together out loud. Uh, You might think, hang on, Pastor Dylan, we just got done hearing about the dangers of praying in public. And yeah, that's true. That doesn't make praying in public evil. It makes praying in public for the sake of applause evil. We're still told we have to pray together. Uh, Learning to pray together is an antidote against the modern disease that says my spirituality is between me, God, and no one else. Nothing could be farther from the truth. Now, in part, that's the truth. We just heard it from Jesus. But we know that a good lie is always sprinkled with a lot of truth. We must pray together. It's not optional. We have to do it. Uh, I, I think some of us avoid it because maybe we're just introverted. Maybe we're embarrassed or maybe we've been hurt or perhaps we've been angry at how we've been treated when we've been vulnerable in the past. Uh, I get it. I feel those emotions too. It doesn't feel good to try again. But we can't pretend that the Christianity we read about in the New Testament permits us to remain in perpetual isolation. People have hurt us They've abused us, they've lied to us, they've manipulated us, and whether you're a Christian or not, it's pretty easy to be grossed out by how the church, or society for that matter, has treated people. But when Jesus is writing his prayer book, he envisions us together, not retreating into an online sermon. When we get hurt by people, the only way we get healed is by people also. That's the risk we take in order to be truly known and loved. Prayer starts in the secret place, but it doesn't stay there. It moves outward, it looks to the people around us, and that's how Jesus's prayer winds down, by not just looking at our evil, but towards those who have done us wrong as well. The worship team come on back at this time. As they come, I want you to listen really closely to this portion of the scripture, because listen to me. This is the portion Jesus thought was the most important. He says this in verses 14 and 15, for if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. 
Now listen to this loud and clear. I hope you get this. If you get nothing else out of today, get this. The only portion of the Lord's Prayer that Jesus gives additional clarification and explanation to is this portion about forgiveness. Why is that? I imagine because it's easier for us to accept that prayer needs to be private. Sign me up, right? All the introverts are celebrating that on the inside very quietly, though. Um, I imagine it's easier for us to accept that God doesn't mind how we pray so long as we pray and trust Him. That sounds great. Nobody's saying no to that. And we like to embrace that Jesus gave us a helpful template so if we don't have eloquent words, we could pray them. But then it comes to the part where we're told that our prayers make us responsible for other people. And we're like, hold up, I, I, I didn't sign up for that one. I imagine Jesus had to clarify in case we read that part of the prayer under our breath and fast forward, right? Like, uh, and forgive us our debts as we forgive others, and protect us from evil, for thine is the kingdom and power and glory. Some of you guys love singing that Maverick City song about the Lord's Prayer, which 95% of it is them just repeating the line that's not actually there in the scriptures, okay? Hate to break it to you. We turn the volume up, and we put the emphasis where it's comfortable for us to do so in prayer. Jesus, however, goes back over his prayer with a highlighter and picks the line that you probably want to think the least about. He tells us we got to pray in secret, pray with trust, and pray like this, but he won't let you say amen until you say sorry first. We must, number four, pray with forgiveness. Otherwise, our prayers are about us instead of about God. John the Apostle speaks it crystal clear. In 1 John 4.20, he says, You don't love God who you can't see if you don't love the person next to you that you can see. You see, some of us might feel justified in not forgiving that person, that kid, that spouse, that whoever. You might think to yourself, they don't deserve it. Yeah, of course, that's true, and neither do we. It's important to note that forgiveness, I know, it's not, it's, forgiveness isn't failing to set boundaries. It, of course, doesn't mean putting yourself in a bad situation. And forgiveness doesn't mean putting yourself under the influence of somebody ever again. But I think we've gotten so good at saying what forgiveness isn't that we never really get around to saying what it is. Our culture celebrates asserting yourself against the abuser and oppressor and rightly so. Justice is incredibly important to God because he is a God of justice. Yes and amen. And yet I think we've done so at the expense of mercy. A pastor I really respect named Tim Keller identified our culture well in his book, Forgive, Why Should I and How Can I? When he said, American culture, which pits self-fulfillment against self-sacrifice will produce revenge or withdrawal as a response to any mistreatment. In such a culture, forgiveness is seen as self-hating and revenge and anger are considered authentic. Jesus makes us painfully aware that we have debts that only get forgiven 
if we're the kind of people who forgive those who are indebted to us, if we're the kind of people who pray for those who have wronged us, that coworker who did you wrong and slandered and damaged you, that spouse who betrayed you, that kid who can't stand you. That doesn't mean letting people off the hook. Doesn't mean letting people go without consequence but it does mean that you don't get to assign the ultimate cost because God already did that. We can hold people accountable without enacting vengeance, but we'll never be able to walk that tightrope unless we forgive them from the heart. And praying for them is a really good way to start that process. Jesus practices what he preached, and when he was hung on a cross, his prayer was, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. There's no better way I know of to build compassion and forgiveness towards people than by praying for them. And Jesus says, if you're an apprentice, that's what you do. You don't fight back. You turn the other cheek. That's how we become the kind of people who can endure a prison camp or forgive a betrayal or love our enemies when the world is telling us to fight them. That's how you're reshaped on the inside. You start to pray in the secret place, but eventually it will move to the common area, and it's a mess out here. <laughs> but it's what God intended. Because when you pray for the person who betrayed you, the enemy who hurt you, the wayward child who can't stand you, you'll begin to see both a change in your heart and in theirs. That's what Christ intended. You see, Jesus said it this way in John chapter 12, the grain of wheat that won't die remains alone. But if it falls to the ground and dies, it produces much fruit. Part of us has to enter the secret place of God. And we have to die there. And when we come back out, God will give you the fortitude and capacity to forgive the unforgivable because Christ has forgiven the unforgivable in you. Only his Holy Spirit in you can do that. You don't have the power to do that. You can't change you no more than you can change somebody else, but God can and he will if you'll meet him in that place. And so I'm going to give you the opportunity to do that today. As the team plays, these altars are open. I'm not here to pray with you. This is a place where you can come pray by yourself. And you might say, well, this isn't very secret, is it? Not in a room. Susanna Wesley, one of my personal hero heroes, raised John and Charles Wesley, was a mother of 10. Yes, you heard that right, one zero. Her private prayer place was the middle of a kitchen with a towel over her head. And the kids knew the wrath of God comes if you bother mom while that, that towel's on. It doesn't matter where you are, you can pray in secret. And so I pray that you would come. There are pray first bracelets here. Come take one to remind yourself that when you want to lash out, pray first. When you want vengeance, pray first. When you want to get even or lash out at your spouse or your kid or your coworker, pray first. And I guarantee you, one day at a time, one week at a time, and one year at a time, God will make you into the kind of person who when the worst comes, Jesus said it this way, when the rain comes and the winds blow, you'll have the kind of house that stands because you practiced righteousness. You just didn't talk about it. So come 
and pray. Thank you for being with us today. Be sure to listen to all our messages on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. And follow us on ne-cc.org for all information and updates. Thank you. God bless. Have a great day.